0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this LSE Festival event. Uh, We're delighted that you've uh, joined us for it. Um, I can see more participants are joining as we speak, and it's great to see where people are joining us from. It looks like we've got um, a very diverse geographic audience. Um, So today we're going to talk about how to navigate data law and its challenges and opportunities. My name is Orla Linsky. I'm an associate professor here at the LSE Law School. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Professor Andrew Murray, who is a professor at the LSE Law School. Uh, You might know Andrew from his uh, textbook, Information Technology, Law and Society. Um, And I won't say too much about Andrew, save for um, the fact that he's a wonderful colleague. He he has um, a great, knowledge of data law in its in its widest sense having for instance acted as the specialist advisor to the house of lords in its 2017 um, report on regulating in a digital world my area of specialism is eu data protection law and so i think we complement one another um, quite well as i hope you will agree so as i said today we want to talk about how to navigate data law data law is the focus of our online course Data, Law, Policy, and Regulation. Uh, We designed this course a few years ago, and since then, the law, at least in Europe, has really moved on, as I think uh, we'll show you today. However, um, our our contestation or our, our claim is really that the underlying questions around the legal framework as such have largely remained unchanged. And so today we want to present some of those changes and to put them in their broader context. I am going to now share my screen. So I will um, begin. Uh, I'll share my screen. I will present for 15 minutes or so. Then I'll pass the floor to Andrew and um, then he will deliver his presentation. I'm just uh, finding my presentation, which seems to have gone missing in action, if you bear with me navigating data law and how, I suppose, not to get stuck (laughs) in this new regulatory environment. First, let's start with the question about what is data law? So typically, when we think about data law, we think about, I would say, data privacy law. We know from the work of scholars like Graham Greenleaf that in the last um, couple of decades, we've seen this uh, exponential increase in the number of countries that have data privacy laws on the books. So we now have over 100 countries with data privacy laws, mm-hmm. like the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, on the books. However, um, as you can see from this slide, and as we we show in our course, um, data law goes beyond Data privacy law. Data privacy law is one part of a larger legal framework that regulates the way in which we use data, data sharing, data access, data flows. And so I've taken this definition here by Thomas Strains, um, a a U.S.-based academic who describes European data law. And I'll use European data law as my example, because I think this is where data law at the moment has been most developed. He says European data law is a legal domain that encompasses but extends beyond data protection law. It's an attempt to bring together these seemingly disparate areas of law around a unifying concept. And that unifying concept is data. And so if um, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation um, The EU data privacy law entered into force in 2018, so it's relatively new, just four years old um, on the the 25th of May. Um, What we've seen since is that we have all of these other legislative instruments proposed by the EU that also directly or indirectly regulate data processing. So we've got a Data Act, a Digital Markets Act, a Data Governance Act, an AI regulation, free flow of non-personal data regulation, And in some ways, in order to understand um, how the law regulates data, you need to know about all of these um, legal frameworks. So then, what is the data in data law? Well, first of all, what's interesting about these legal instruments is that really only one of them defines data. This is the definition of data um, in uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, So information, especially facts or numbers, collected to be examined and considered and used to help decision making, or information in an electronic form. But you can see already there that we might distinguish, for instance, um, between data and the information gleaned from data. (laughs) Um, and That's not entirely clear from that definition. Does data need to be digital, et cetera, et cetera? We could ask all of these questions, but these aren't necessarily resolved in the EU legislative instruments. Instead, the way the EU legislative instruments seem to approach this question of what is data is through the definition of personal data that you find in data privacy law. So data privacy law in the EU Convention 108 of the Council of Europe and, and various other international legal instruments defines personal data as any information that relates to someone who is identified or identifiable. So it refers to information that information has to relate to, so be about or impact on a person. And that person has to either be directly uh, identified, for instance, by name or social security number, or identifiable by adding additional information to the personal data. And then non-personal data is simply everything that is not personal data. So data, you might say in the EU, equals personal and non-personal data. So this really kind of situates the data privacy framework at the centre of EU data policy. Is that right? (laughs) Um, Well, I would say from a purely doctrinal perspective, it certainly is. Why... um, Because if you look at the EU data protection framework, you'll see that um, it's based on the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. So this is a primary law instrument, um, an international uh, treaty of sorts, um, the same effect as a constitution in the EU legal order, although it's never spoken about in that way. And this gives, in addition to a right to privacy, a right to data protection. Um, And you can see here that this right says everyone has the right to the protection of personal data concerning him or her. Um, It specifies some elements of the data protection framework that that need to be respected. And it says that these rules are enforced by independent authorities. So why is this important in EU data law? Well, this is the norm, the legal norm, that all other legislative instruments the AI Act, the Digital Markets Act, etc. they all need to respect this right to data protection. And you see this in a lot of their, their, their wording, where they say um, that they're without prejudice to the GDPR, the, the, the legislative instrument that gives effect to the right to data protection. So what this means is that if you look at the objectives of EU data law, you'll see that a central pillar of EU data law, is about ensuring respect for fundamental rights. That's most clear in the GDPR. However, when we look at the other legal instruments, like the Data Act or the Digital Markets Act, for instance, they're more about promoting the availability of data, about making data available for processing, for use and reuse. So this might be Making search engine data available to competitors to a a dominant search engine like Google so that they can compete effectively with Google on the market. Or um, making personal data available to startups so that they can try to innovate with that data by introducing new AI systems, for instance. Um, And so if we think that the kind of basic ingredient of an AI system is data, Of course, other ingredients are necessary, but data is also indispensable. Then these rules are trying to to promote innovation in European markets by promoting availability of data. And then something like the Digital Markets Act really emphasizes that that digital markets should be fair and they should be contestable. So um, there should be scope for companies to, to, to really challenge the dominant market position of let's say, big tech. Again, something we we touch upon in our course. So stepping back a bit, I think there are two big queries about this kind of new legal landscape for EU data law. So one, we could say, how do these various laws relate to one another? And kind of two, um, how can we harness the synergies between these laws while trying to minimize any potential conflicts between them? And I'll, I'll just run you through um, a couple of examples to give you a flavour of um, how we might answer these questions. So, first of all, how do the laws connect or relate to one another? I don't actually think that we have a single answer to this, because I think um, that they connect in different ways. Some of them are like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, where they're, they're complements And where one law um, stops, another law begins. Let me just give you an example of that. We have um, a free flow of non-personal data regulation in the EU. So this requires or prevents EU member states from putting in place legal impediments or practical impediments, any impediments to the free flow of data. Um, across the European Union. So this is trying to get data flowing within the EU's internal market. But this only applies to non-personal data. So this is an act that that, that complements the GDPR. GDPR applies to free flow of personal data and seeks to facilitate that. And this free flow of non-personal data sits alongside the GDPR. So that's kind of our jigsaw effect. here. I think we might call it a lasagna effect. You know, we could have kind of layers of laws equally where the laws sit on top of one another um, in a way that uh, allows the laws to kind of build on one another. So an example of this might be the AI Act. So this act governs various um AI systems by categorizing them as high risk, et cetera, et cetera, imposing obligations on, on those systems. But some of the obligations it imposes are things around, for instance, data quality. So the idea that data sets should be um, complete to the extent uh, necessary for their purposes. And that type of obligation, you might say, um, is at, at, the, at the foundations of an automated decision-making system, whereas the GDPR steps in maybe a little bit later in order to regulate the impact of automated decision-making systems. So in some senses, we could see them as kind of building on one another in that type of way. Similarly, the GDPR gives you rights, like the right to access your data, the right to port your data. The Data Governance Act gives um, the possibility or creates the possibility to create data intermediaries who would exercise these rights on your behalf. So in that sense, it clearly kind of builds on the GDPR. Then another question might be, um, how to harness synergies and minimize tension. So you'll, you'll forgive the big block of text here, but let me tell you what the slide is about. So in the Digital Markets Act, which applies to dominant companies, those companies that have a lot of market power, um, there's an obligation on dominant companies to give access to data to their competitors, effectively, to other business users that are dependent on the gatekeeper system. So if you had, um, for instance, an app that was offered um, in the uh, Apple App Store, <laughs> then um, Apple, if it was aggregating data about the usage of that app, would need to give access to that data to to, to business users. And so here, um, the idea is that you share data for innovation purposes, but this data sharing um, is conditional. If we look at the second paragraph here, where the data is personal data, it's conditional on um, the end user opting into such sharing by giving consent. And so you can see here that this kind of connects to the GDPR because you need GDPR consent before you can share data in this way. So that's a, a potential synergy, you might say, between the legal frameworks. But we, we, we could, some, I think people will look at a provision like that in different ways. So on the one hand, you might say that there's a synergy here because this might facilitate rights respecting innovation why rights respecting innovation? Because the data sharing is based on consent. So this looks kind of win-win for everyone. On the other hand, um, and our very excellent PhD researcher Katie Nolan is working on this, data is also relational. Data about me, um, for instance, the information about this uh, Zoom seminar today, will also tell you information about Andrew. And so, disaggregating that data can be very difficult. So this kind of consent-based data sharing overlooks that I may consent to have um, another company process my data, but um, those who, the other people whose inferences, about whom inferences might be drawn based on my data will have no say in this. And then, of course, you might say, well, what we're doing here is simply creating a um, or normalizing a a kind of a surveillance capitalist business model where our information is being used in order to nudge or influence us. And and all these types of provisions do is is to encourage that business model. Um, That's probably not not such a nuanced point, I would say. Um, So you can see that there will be tensions to to negotiate, though, um, between these various legal frameworks. And From an institutional perspective, and I won't say much on this, as I know Andrew will be returning to it. What this means is that we'll probably need to see cooperation between regulators in tangible cases. So just to say for the Digital Markets Act in the EU, what's envisaged is a high level group bringing together competition authorities, data protection authorities and other interested regulators in order to steer the application of things like these data sharing obligations to make sure that they're applied in a way that complies with the, the relevant legislative framework. So just to conclude, um, I think this raises lots of interesting questions for, for law, for policy, for regulation. Um, you know, People looking from the outside at the, at the way in which EU data law has developed might say, is this kind of multi-pronged approach where we, we create this, this complement of legislation, is this the optimal way to regulate in the digital environment? On the one hand, you could say yes, because these laws kind of fill the gaps created, um, you know, created by one another. They, they act as complements in many ways. On the other hand... Looking at this, for instance, from a civil society perspective or from a citizen perspective, this is a very complex legal landscape to navigate. And you might question who benefits from this type of complexity. Lawyers, perhaps, those with deep pockets, certainly. (laughs) Um, Will this lead to regulatory fragmentation? Does this really mean um, if this EU landscape becomes so complex, What are the effects of this beyond the EU's borders if all other states adopt um, a similar approach? On the one hand, we might say this makes it very difficult um, for firms, for instance, to navigate um, delivering services and content in the online world. On the other hand, I was at a seminar on Monday um, where Andrea Koscelli, the the head of the um, Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, kind of hinted at the fact that the idea of global business models by the big tech companies was never really realistic as a proposition anyway, because they, they, they deal in cultural goods and in, in, in communications, et cetera. So was this always just an aspiration to have a holistic, single legal framework um, worldwide? And of course, how will regulators cooperate and stakeholders navigate this, um, this landscape? So with that, uh, I am going to pass immediately uh, to Andrew who will take the floor and go a little further on these and other questions.
1: Thank you very much uh, Orla and and welcome everybody. I I see in the, the chat a very international group that we have here Uh, And and just to remind people, there's there's one or two people have done this. If if you've got questions that are coming up as you go along, drop them into the the Q&A box. And and after I I finish doing the the second half of this talk to try and sort of build a little bit on one or two of the questions Orla asked at the end there, we will get to your questions and and try and answer them and, and give a little bit of an insight into where Data law is going um, and, and how you can learn more about data law. So, I'm, I'm going to share um, my screen much as Orla did. Um, so, you should all now hopefully be seeing a lovely screen on navigating data law. Um, and, and much like um, the theme that Orla gave when, when I saw her slides um, of the, the ever grand um, ship trapped in the Suez Canal, um, I've got a navigator to hopefully find our way out from any kind of data log trap we may be in. So Orla talked in really great detail there. Um, about the the very complex framework that the EU is trying to construct at the moment. Uh, And I think she wins the award for being the first person I've heard to fit lasagna into a talk on data law and data protection. Um, And it really is complicated. It is multi-layered. It is a, a jigsaw lasagna. There's no other way to put it because there's so many different complexities going together. Now, my area of interest is is less the detail of data protection law, but more the wider question of how we navigate the complexity of all these pieces coming together. Um, And so I'm gonna bring us back a little bit from the EU to something in the UK and then build back out again. And so um, the reason that we have this complex, multi-layered jigsaw, is the complexity of what we're seeking to regulate. The best way to think about data law from the perspective of the regulators is it is like trying to play three-dimensional chess um, where nobody has told you the rules. There are complex moves and complex players everywhere. And this is because data is embedded in our society today. So everywhere we turn today, we're all here as digital persons rather than as real persons, just one simple example. So one thing we can do is we can kind of think about the key aspects that data is playing in our society in, in our cultures and in our economies, and then from that build back to the roles of regulators. So I'm doing this by starting, as I said, from the UK and then building back out again. So here we've got three key pillars that data plays In our society, data is economically important. Data drives markets. You heard it a few times in Orla's presentation. She talked about the surveillance society or surveillance economics. Um, We talk about the idea of competition or dominance with companies perhaps like Google in search or Facebook in platforms or others. So one aspect that we have to deal with is how data drives our economy. So there's the market question. Then in the middle here, we've got a central pillar, which was uh, the starting point of much data law, which is how data reflects our identity This is where GDPR and the fundamental right in Article 8 of the EU Charter comes in. The reason we have a fundamental right to data privacy is that data or the data about us can be used to create a mirror of ourselves in data. And that mirror reflects our personality, our identity, also our economic value. So we have this concept of data being part of our reflective identity. You will hear sometimes of the idea of the data person or in data protection terms, the data subject. Then, of course, data and modern digital is important for our culture. Um, We we read digital, we view digital, we communicate digitally digitally. We understand and contextualize digitally. So digital drives our culture and data underpins that culture. If you think that your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed is purely random, then definitely do sign up for our course because there is no randomness there. You are um, categorized. You are um, you you are processed by these platforms, which then decides how they're going to best serve you their product. Now, these three um, pillars also fit onto how we think about regulation. So, there are more regulators in this space. Orla um, mentioned I did some work with House of Lords and there we, we identified at least 13 regulators who all have key roles to play in the digital space. But here are um, a number of them that are the key ones that I want to look at, which map directly on if you look up and down markets uh going to the digital markets unit identity information commissioner and culture onto ofcom these three have key roles to play the digital markets unit kind of exists in the moment in a shadow space it still needs to be formalized through UK legislation, which according to the Queen's speech will be forthcoming, despite some concerns reported before the Queen's speech that it might not be. So the Digital Markets Unit exists, it's part of the Competition Markets Authority, it has staff, it has a role, but it doesn't yet have its full statutory footing, but it's coming and it's very important. Um, The Information Commissioner's Office, of course, is a well-established UK regulator The ICO deals with data protection law, but also a number of other things such as um, open data and open information and that kind of thing. Then we have Ofcom. Now, Ofcom are in digital, a little bit of a newcomer in some way. I thought I'd been here for a long time. Ofcom started off as the communications regulator, an amalgamation of the telecoms regulator and various broadcast regulators and the radio regulator to become the communications regulator post-2003. Over the years, Ofcom have become a bit more digital as they go along. They have become interested in things such as online delivery of video content, um, so regulating the likes of YouTube and others. But their big new role is going to be as the regulator under the online safety act once it is passed, they will be the online safety regulator. So it will be their job to make in the words of the UK government, the internet in the UK, the safest place to be online. Um, And they have already taken on some about 300 new staff to try and fulfill this role. And they will be taking on more staff. So what we're seeing here is we're seeing different functions of data and different regulators. So, is there a problem here? Is our jigsaw apart? Does the digital markets unit talk to Ofcom? Does Ofcom talk to the information commissioner? Well, maybe not as much as we might like, although they are getting better. Um, when we looked in the House of Lords inquiry some three years ago, We brought them in and asked them to give evidence and we said, do you speak to each other? And they all appeared before us. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We chat to each other regularly. But when we dug into it, the evidence was that although they had meetings, that the meaningfulness of that informational exchange was maybe not what one might have hoped. We recommended a new meta regulator to bring them together called the Digital Authority, um, we now have, and this was on Orla's slide, we now have something a slightly light version of that called the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, created by the regulators. So the key regulators are here on the slide, the FCA, the ICO, Ofcom, and the CMA. They're the four partners in this. Originally was the three, CMA, Ofcom, and ICO, and then they invited along FCA, Other regulators can be brought into their meetings, but are not full members as yet. That being said, other regulators may be invited along. What does DRCF tell us and why is this important and why can we then take this back out to the macro scale? Well, what we find is that what we would call traditional sectoral regulators are becoming digital regulators, So the FCA are designed to regulate financial markets and banks, not to regulate digital society and culture. The CMA are a competition authority around abusive markets and around dominance and those kinds of things. But they are having to become a digital regulator. The only originally digital regulator there is the ICO. All the other regulators have had to evolve into their digital roles. And now they're finding their way to kind of try and bring the pieces together, to put all the bits of the jigsaw together in the same way that Orla mentioned the European Union and the European Commission are trying to do through their data program, all these different acts that are being put together. So, what we're seeing is a very complicated regulatory framework. Data is not just personal data, data is all kinds of data personal, non personal, economically valuable, less economically valuable. And regulators from different market segments are all having to find ways to come together and cooperate. So, that's just a British example. What I want to do is pull back and then come forward in the last few minutes. We need to think globally. The UK is a little bit on that map there. Um, It's actually a bit bigger in reality on that map than it is. The UK is nowhere near the same size of somewhere like um, Niger or Chad. Uh, The map is not very representative here of scale. Um, We're not a terribly big or terribly important place in that sense, but we export a lot of our values to the world, our kind of rule of law values, or at least we did. The European Union, takes a really leading view on this. The EU has such an all-encompassing framework of data laws because they believe it's their role to give leadership in this. The EU strongly believes in giving leadership around new technologies and especially on data protection and data privacy. And we can see this if we look at something like this, the global privacy map of countries that are either um, putting into place regulations for GDPR style protection of personal data, um, or who are developing regulations. And as, as Orla mentioned, like Graham Greenleaf does these kind of annual surveys, and every year more and more countries are developing European style data protection laws. Now, part of this is something called the Brussels effect. And it's been written about a lot. Um, This is Andrew Bradford's book um, cover about the Brussels effect. Essentially, the value and importance of the European Union to traders is such that compliance with EU standards is valued and is sought. And once you design a product or service to meet EU standards, you don't tend to redesign it for other countries. You tend just to have one design. So this Brussels effect is that you can lift global standards theoretically by having people meet the standards of Brussels and it's economically makes sense for them to do so. But one really important impact that we might think about when we see this map is that what we actually see here is what I call data is not taxation. There are not many what you might call data havens in the world, as we have with tax havens. The reason for this is data is valuable in situ. Data is valuable about the data subject, the person, the European Union citizen, who is protected by GDPR. So you are as well to comply with the Brussels standards because that's what you're going to meet anyway. Taxation is different, of course. You can set up your tax affairs to move money into tax havens and to pay less tax. So data is different to tax. But there's one other lesson we maybe have. Data is maybe a little bit like shipping law. You might have heard of the flag of convenience, ships registered in somewhere like Liberia because it is perceived that the regulator is rather less strict in those countries and that it is easier to meet all the safety standards and other standards. There is a little bit of evidence that data might be a little bit like shipping. There is something called the Port Arlington effect, which is quite an interesting effect That little office that you see there behind um, the data protection commissioner, the Irish data protection commissioner, is genuinely the headquarters of the Irish data protection commissioner. It looks like a convenience store. And it kind of was once upon a time in a small town called Port Arlington, um, which is not a big town, even by Irish standards. Um, And they moved there in 2008 as part of an Irish Decentraling policy to move jobs away from Dublin and to move civil service jobs and other jobs away from Dublin. And it had a really horrible effect on gutting the Irish Data Protection Commissioner. Um, I believe that only one member of staff relocated from Dublin to Port Arlington at the time, and everybody else had to be reemployed. So they lost all their skills, they lost all their staff. And ever since then, there has been a bit of a view that the Irish Data Protection Commissioner is a bit of a flag of convenience that is flown by major U.S. multinationals like Facebook, Google, Apple, Microsoft, and others as a safe port in the European Union. So data might be a bit like shipping law in that sense. You can pick your preferred data regulator. And this is something that the European Union are trying to prevent in their new models around things like the Digital Markets Act and the... Um, Digital um, Services Act. So the last thing I'm gonna say, let's get back to to navigating. How do we get the Evergrande out of the um, canal and sailing happily to its destination? Things like the Brussels effect are important and Brussels is giving leadership in this space. But we need to remember that this is also a global space and that Brussels is not the only game in town and we don't have to all follow the Brussels standards. Just last week, it was announced that Brussels is now going to be standardizing charging cables for things like phones and tablets. So everybody will be need to have a type C charger cable from 2024, I think it is, uh, for their devices. Now, in some ways, this is great. You don't have to have that drawer full of cables. But in another way, who's Brussels to decide what the best charging cable is? What about the market? What about if there is a better technology out there and a regulator is saying, well, you can't use it until we change the regulation, which will take two or three years possibly. So we need to think about whether it's right for regulators to be setting these standards. And so this is something that, that Chris Reed and I talked in our book, Rethinking the Jurisprudence of Cyberspace. When is a, an actor legitimate in this space? And this is something we really need to think about. Who are the legitimate regulators? Who can set the standards? The Brussels effect is generally not a bad thing. I'm not against Brussels giving leadership, especially in things like GDPR and personal data protection. But we need to consider whether the entire lasagna that we were talking about of the AI Act and others are all equally as important. And the last thing we need to think about, and I'm going to stop after this and we can take the Q&A, is how we get cooperation between regulators, meaningful cooperation, because this is a world that affects us all. And it's not just for a small number of people in Brussels set standards. We saw when people were introducing themselves, people from all around the world. We all need to think about what we want in terms of safety for ourselves and our personalities, what we want in terms of safety for our children and our family online, what we want in terms of our devices and interoperability, and how we want to tackle the markets. And I think this requires much more regulated cooperation. This requires much more questions about who the legitimate regulators are. And these are the kinds of questions that we try to equip you to think about. So, I'm going to stop sharing now and I'm going to stop there. Uh, I'm just going to bring that back.
0: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ. Wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event.
1: We can now move to the Q and A, or are you okay to move to the Q and A? Perfect. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to sort of manage the Q and A um, from here. Um, so I'm trying to just see what we've we've kind of got. So. Uh, I'll start. Actually, it's a really easy one. Oh, in some ways, easy one. There's an easy one. I'm going to start with Orla, so I can then look at the other ones and get going. We've got um, from Akinshola, and I apologise for his name. I mispronounced. Can you provide an example of non-personal data addressed by the NPDR? So the non-personal data regulation.
0: That's a, a great question. So I, I think I'll, I'll just start with the highlighting the challenge here. The challenge discussed is that the definition of personal data is so broad that it can be difficult to distinguish or to find types of data that are non-personal data. But if, for instance, you think of something like a photograph of an object that you find in a warehouse that is then going to be, you know, picked and packed and delivered to you if you make an order through any any online retailer, then the photo of that image would be a good example of non-personal data. And that type of non-personal data can be used to do things like train AI models, et cetera, et cetera, teach robots to more effectively distinguish between different sizes and types and uh, shapes of packages, for example. So I'd say that's probably a good example of of non-personal data.
1: Thank you, thank you. Now I've chance to look at the question. I'm going to pick out one um, here for myself. So actually, it's it's being asked by by Jose, who I seem to remember is one of our graduates. Um, nice to have you, um, Jose. Um, do you think the risk-based approach followed by several of these acts provides a flexible approach for the interaction of or amongst them, or does it really signal that the data sharing is more important than robust data protection? So I'll I'll start that, and you, you might want to. Come in, Orla, as well, and pick up that that, that last bit um, about robust personal data protection. So, yeah, the risk-based approach. So there are a number of approaches that can be taken to data regulation. Um, and the, the one that absolutely doesn't work is the historic what's called cybernetic model, uh, which essentially means that you try to you try to regulate for the interactions that occur and to provide essentially a, a kind of playbook. For the regulator to respond to each type of situation because the complexity is too great. So there are a number of, of different approaches that, that one might take. The European Union in many of these things is looking towards risk. So if we take the AI act as, as an example, um, uh, it was mentioned by Orla, that the, the concept is that we can put AI into sort of different bundles. That There is the unacceptably risky AI or the unacceptably harmful AI, which will simply not be allowed. So these are things um, such as um, real-time um, um, biometric data tracking, Um, and things um, like social credit scoring and that kind of thing and then everything else kind of fits into a risk pattern underneath this Um, and so we have the higher risk which are things especially around um, sort of food chains and supply chains around employment, allowed education and then we've got what they call the transparency risk and then the low risk. I think the problem is the the idea behind this is is to provide of flexibility because the issue with AI is it's in development. But, um, and I mean, Orla, I might be interested to see what Orla comes and says about this. I think the big issue is that these risk models, they don't capture what is the, the, the sort of input risk, if you will, which is the data sets that are being used. Um, and they they have this requirement that data sets sort of be complete, um, that data sets be accurate and those kinds of things. But there is nothing that, unless I'm wrong, there's nothing I think in there, Orla might correct me if I'm wrong on this, which says that our sort of personal identifiable data can't be contained within these data sets. So the AI is being trained about us, in essence, without our permission and without our agreement, and without our understanding. And if we go back to the three pillars, that central pillar about identity, is that these AIs are, are being thought about in terms or are being trained collectively around our data and our personalities. And I think this is something that, that that is partly some of the layers that don't fit together. I don't know if you agree, Orla, about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I I think this is also a good example of um, where maybe the AI Act interacts with the GDPR because the AI Act deals with kind of the more systemic um, risks from AI systems. Mm. Whether or not it does so effectively is a whole different question, but, you know, that's that's its stated aim. And uh, whereas the GDPR then gives individuals rights where their data are included, for instance, in these data sets that would be used to train AI systems. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a, a kind of a critique of, of the, the GDPR often as, as being too individualized, but in that sense, you could see that individual rights for, um, for, for, for data subjects can kind of complement the, the systems-based approach that you find in the AI Act.
1: Yeah, thank you. So I'm, I'm going to think we've got two questions from, from Blanche, and I'm going to answer them together because um, the first one's a very short one, but uh, the second one's quite interesting. It's it's, it's less gdpr so it's more in my area. So, so we've got two questions for Blanche. So the first one's saying she starts at LSE this September. So congratulations, Blanche. Um, um, I hope you enjoy being at LSE. It's, we find it's a great place to be and our students generally love it. So I hope you really like it when you get here. The really quick answer question is um, LSE 100, how can we control AI course? Um, do Will either of us be teaching on it? Well, Yes, in a sense. I, I don't know. Do you do anything towards that, Orla? No, but um, I, I do, but not in person. Um, the, there's a whole load of wonderful recorded videos with faculty all across the LSE that contribute to that course, and so I am one of the videos that um, you will you will hear and see from um, in LSE 100. But but you, the second question is the bigger question: um, What's your opinion? On Google's AI that has recently been speculated to be sentient. How might we face the challenge of data protection? Given that five to ten years, quantum computing will be able to override any current cybersecurity. So there's actually about four questions in there. Um, so I'm I'm going to start by by kind of unpicking the first one. I don't know if Orla wants to come back to the data protection implications in a second. Um, but first of all, I mean, I don't think Google's AI is sentient. We'll see. Um, I might be wrong on that. Um, it's it, I think it's it's the kind of it's the kind of answers that you would expect a really smart system to be able to give. But the questions of AI sentience is gonna become more challenging in the next sort of 10 to 15 years um, because computing power is getting more powerful every day and quantum computers will just make it exponentially more powerful. And at the same time, the size of data sets that are being used to train algorithmic machine learning programs are getting so much bigger. We now have data sets that have more than a trillion entries in them. Um, so these are huge data sets. So they have more processing power and more data. So in time, AI will start to look more sentient. I don't think it will have human types of sentience, but it'll start to look more sentient. It'll start to act in a more sentient way. So we, we will have these challenges Wherein we're going to be dealing, especially through screens with something, and we might not know if we're dealing with a human or with a machine. Um, and that's why transparency is an important part of the, the AI Act in the European Union, because they want us to understand if we're actually interacting with a human or not. I mean, <laughs> you've got no way to know if I'm a human or not. I I, I am but you've just got to believe me on that because we're working through a screen here. Um, I could be a very sophisticated piece of AI. And I think this is the real question, is that when we're dealing more and more with automated machine learning and automated decision-making, is that it really affects how we act and it affects our society. Um, And this is a big part of the, the online course that we do, is thinking about these questions and thinking about how machines... Um, have different biases to humans. Um, It's not that they don't have biases, they have different biases, and how they produce different types of answers humans do, and whether there's a role for them to have that kind of decision-making, both in regulation and in things like the law. Would you be happy to be judged by a computer rather than a human judge? Would you prefer it? Um, There's all kinds of questions around how we make our decisions and understand the world. And I think that's going to be the big challenge for the next five to 10 years. Um, I don't know if you want to add anything on security or, or anything or um,
0: Maybe just to say, and I think this can be linked to, to Peter's question. So Peter also asks, why is personal data more protected than non-personal data? Mm. It, it, just to note that it's not the data we're protecting, it's people. <laughs> and so you, I think we need to go back then to, to the the basics of, of the data protection framework, which is in some ways to give expression to individual rights in, in the digital environment. And so we protect personal data um, we protect processing of personal data because we think that um, the processing of that information can can harm individual rights around autonomy, choice, dignity, um, but also societal interests like um, the the interest of society not to be surveilled on a constant basis um, through that type of legal framework. But it's true that The difference between personal data and non-personal data is is, um, hard to maintain, I think, or becomes more difficult to maintain, particularly if we start to bring in things like artificially generated data. Mm. So really, I think, and this goes to the quantum computing point, I think data frameworks in the future will probably shift more towards looking at the harms that stem from data-driven processing rather than necessarily trying to regulate the processing itself. Um, But I don't don't think we're there yet. I think the data protection framework's um, holding its own in the face of digital change because it is largely a principles-based framework.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm going to ask you a a relatively detailed question from um, Andrew, which is just skipped on my screen. So um, so, uh, Andrew asks, Is is it a planned UK framework of legislation to match the New in the EU? I can answer part of that. but I'm going to throw a little bit to you first. I've been told in the past the UK ICO provided significant leadership contribution to evolution of EU arrangements. Is the UK still engaged at this level internationally? So that's that's really the detailed question for you. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: the ICO, the UK data protection regulator, um, continues to play a role on on the international stage, for instance, was chair of the, the Global Privacy Assembly. It no longer plays that kind of influential role within the EU um, for obvious reasons um, since the UK's exit. It's unclear what direction UK data protection law will, or UK data law more generally will take. Um, The government published an outline document uh, just before, uh, in November, December of last year, Data and New Direction, where the emphasis was very much more on kind of data sharing, using data for for other purposes and, and a, a, I think it was a clear step away from fundamental rights protection um, and that vision of, of data protection. Um, some civil society groups um, yesterday wrote to the, the um, culture secretary arguing that the consultations around that for that reform had been um, had lacked transparency and that their positions weren't being taken into account in reforming the UK law. so I would say watch this space.
1: Yes no exactly no, i think you you've answered that all i mean i think there is a there is going to possibly be a new uk data protection law there is a framework for a, a uk ai act but um very much the drive or the, the word coming from from westminster is more about markets and use of data rather than sort of the, the strong framework of protection is what i'm mostly hearing um, so, I, I I was going to pick up. There was a really interesting question. The questions keep bouncing up and down. Ah, there's a question from um, Sia or Sai. I, pro, I apologize for one. Oh, no, sorry. That's not the one I was going to pick. I can come back to that one in a second. It was the question above Suheel. Sorry. Uh, what's your opinion about corporations sharing their profits from personal data? Uh, with the person themselves, should it be a personal data contract law that guarantees profit sharing? So uh, there, there's a, this is interesting. There, there are elements of this that we cover um, in the in the course about alternatives to data protection law, um, and and the, the the framework of data protection as a fundamental right. So you know as as Orla said in the European Union the approach is very much also comes from the European Convention on Human Rights right to privacy includes a right to data privacy Um, and we see this magnified through Article 8 with a specific right to data privacy and data protection in the EU Charter. Um, We have this concept of data protection, data privacy as a fundamental right. And this is because, as I said, or at least in part, the data is reflective of the person. It's about controlling what people know about us and can know about us. There are alternative views to to the idea of the, the fundamental rights approach including the concept of could we have an ownership right in our data? And could we exploit our data in partnership with companies? Um, One way that that this can um, actually be done is through something called a data trust um, who can manage your data um, and, and uh, and allow people to have access to your data or not to have access, depending on the terms of the trust that is set up. Um, The problem with all of these alternatives which which we look at in the course um, is when we talk about contracts or trusts or something like that, it undermines the connective tissue of personal data. Um, For as Orla said, the problem is that one's personal data is not unique to oneself. We are all connected to each other uh, and how my data is monetized is not unique to me. Um, The companies make money from these, um, uh, from these data sets collectively, so it's it's actually very difficult to kind of give one people the value of their data without impacting an other people's personal rights to their data. So there are alternatives, and. and we could think about them, but they're very difficult to operationalize without causing harm to third parties. And and also the other thing is that the value of an individual's data is actually quite frighteningly small. What makes your data worth a lot is when it's collected and processed with other people's data. So you maybe wouldn't get as much back from from Facebook as you, you might expect uh, for your data. I don't know if you want to add anything or, or take. So um, we've got... Couple, I don't know if you've picked up a question you want to answer, or if not, no, that's fine. I've got one or two. So um, so from Vivian, can the dominant undertakings like Google abuse its dominant position of the data generated by it, for example, by not sharing data with its competitors? So that's kind of bringing back in the competition question. So what should we be thinking about from sort of data and competition point of view?
0: Yeah, so um, I can answer that. It, th- Competition authorities are increasingly interested in the ways in which um, dominant companies, so competition applies to companies with monopoly positions, um, including in digital markets. And so the Brazilian Competition Authority has been quite active in the US. You see lots of movement also in Europe. You could only kind of force a company to open up its data sets if you considered those data sets to be an essential facility. So think of something like, competition in the rail industry we're not going to build 10 rail um, railroads we're going to have one single railroad that's an essential facility the railroad owner must make that rail track available to others on fair reasonable and non-discriminatory terms Um, and and there's a lot of debate about whether or not we can and should consider data to be an essential facility in some ways, in the EU, we've sidestepped that question by introducing this new law, the Digital Markets Act, which has the same effect, requiring um, digital gatekeepers to open up their data sets to um, to others to use, um, but without going down the, the competition law route. We could discuss why why, why the legislature took that that um, that initiative for a long time. I think
1: <laughs> uh, we're almost out of time, um, and there are still a number of questions to be answered. So we apologize for not getting through all the questions. What I am going to do is I'm going to pick up actually the very last question which was asked and answer that very quickly and and then close the the session, um, which was from Jennifer, which said, would you consider a data law a separate field of law or an amalgamation of other types, property, torts, etc., cetera, and merely applied to digital assets. That's a really good question. It goes all the way back to the, the origins of this subject, um, where there was a, a chap called Frank Easterbrook, Judge Frank Easterbrook, um, claimed that the data law and, and internet law, as it was then in the 1990s, was what he called the law of the horse. He said, we're looking at the horse, not the law that surrounds it. If you want to learn about horse law, you learn torts and property and criminal and contracts and things. And he said internet law is just the law of the horse. Um, I think over the last 25 years since he said that, it's become accepted that there are unique things about um, data law, if you will. And, And what makes it unique is that data is interconnected, data is global, data is personal, but also data is is economically valuable. It makes it a unique type of asset and it also makes it a uniquely challenging thing for regulators, especially trying to balance the rights of the individual versus the needs of the society. And that data law has over the years become, I think, seen to be both in some ways there is, there is both what you would call a sectoral specific aspect of data law around things like regulating markets, but there's also the, the wider issue of kind of data protection, data privacy and, and regulating for data in the international marketplace. And that, I think, is the perfect place for us to kind of finish up with. Um, so just to say, you know, if you found this really interesting um, and you want to learn more, um, you can sort of come and find out more about our online certificate course, data law, policy, and regulation, um, via the link and information there on the slide. Um, we hope that you've really enjoyed this event, and that we here at the LSE um, hope to see you at the upcoming LSE Festival events this week. Um, the next session at the same time tomorrow will be with the Department of Management. We'll explore how you can be an effective manager in the workplace. So, thank you all for coming and goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.